We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Welcome to ROG. Today is a very special episode. The appalling recent attacks against the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in this country have weighed heavily on my heart. Racist behavior and attacks go against everything that is generous and everything that I believe in, both as a person and as the founder of Bridge Between Inc. As I said in my takeaway tip in last week's episode, Racist attacks go completely against my core values of love, compassion, and generosity. As deeply upset by both the longstanding and more recent examples of racist violence against the AAPI community, I realize that as a white woman, I cannot fully appreciate what my Asian American and Pacific Islander friends and colleagues experience on a daily basis and what they're feeling right now. We are dedicating this series to addressing racism and xenophobia against Asian Americans with Asian American leaders. We'll learn the ROG of leadership and inclusion from these esteemed colleagues. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Chang, a very dear friend and colleague and global chief people officer for the Coca-Cola company. Overseeing the company's talent and people strategies, culture and diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. In her role, which she has held since 2019, She's responsible for leading the company's global people strategy, aligned with the company's purpose of refreshing the world and making a difference. Lisa and her team are focused on creating an environment where employees can thrive and equips the organization to win. Lisa and her husband have three children, daughter Cleo and sons Nathan and Parker. The family also has a furry little baby named Cooper. Lisa has been a close friend and someone I admire and respect for many years. Welcome to ROG, Lisa. Thank you for having me, Shannon. Uh, It's great to be connected and to get the opportunity to learn more from you. You're one of the most generous people I know in the most meaningful ways. You've always responded. You offer help. You give honest feedback. And I really just can't wait to learn more from you today. Let's start with your definition of generosity. I think in the simplest terms to me, generosity is really about kindness. And it's about showing kindness and compassion. Um, obviously shows up in a lot of different ways, but for me, it's, it's really the most simple thing that you know, most of us learned when we were children. Mm, yeah, being kind, caring, making a difference. I mean, I think you're in the perfect organization for how you're wired, you know, an organization that's really committed to making the world a better place and refreshing the world and that you're you're so philanthropic. What would you say are some of the returns on generosity for colleagues, for, for the workplace? When, when leaders are behaving in generous ways, like where they're coaching, they're mentoring, they're involved in employee resource groups. um, What would you say is the, the payoff? Well, I mean, I think the first payoff is, you know, Again, the feeling that you get when someone that you have given to is successful. Um, And again, not that they come back and thank you for it, but you see that you might've had a small part in helping with that success. That's obviously one. 
Um, I think the other is crazy as it sounds, it's empowerment. It's many times when I am able to give to people on my team and I give them either time or I give them the space to do something or the opportunity or whatever, and they hit it out of the park, their recognition from my part is, oh my gosh, I have people on my team that can actually do X, Y, and Z, and that's less work for me. And I don't personally have to do the spreadsheet or the presentation or the deck or whatever, but you get this sense of empowerment of, oh my gosh, this is what leaders do. I like, we're not, we're leaders. We're not supposed to be the actual doers, right? You don't really want me doing the multiple aggressions anymore. I mean, in my early days, I knew how to do that, but I don't know how to do it anymore. So we need people that can do that. But if we don't give them the opportunity and the space to do it, and we're constantly, you know, on top of them, it doesn't help them grow. And then it doesn't help us grow. The biggest thing that I've learned as a leader is, and that was one of my kind of development areas in my early days is delegation right? Those of us that are type A, we don't like to delegate too much because we Mm -hmm. can do it a lot better. But the gift that you receive is this recognition of, wow, that's that's my measure of success is that I now have a capable, high-performing team that can actually do the work. And oh my gosh, doesn't that feel great for me? You know, it feels great for me. Um, Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And so a, a really personal example of that, Shannon, is that my mother um, recently went through um, breast cancer surgery, um, was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer, which was incredibly difficult um, in t- on top of it being during a pandemic. And um, we had just craziness going on at work with a complete restructure and a lot of things going on at the time. And I needed to step away to take care of her and to help her with the surgery. And I moved in with her for a few weeks and really tried to just be there for her. And, you know, Again, type A, I was, you know, no, I can do this. I'll be available. You know, I got to get her to the hospital, but then when we can get get home, I can do calls. And the team just said, no, Lisa, we got this. We got this. We know what needs to get done. We got it. Yeah. Go focus on her. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know, guys. I mean, I'll be here. I can double check your work. You know what? They did a fantastic job, as would be expected. Um, But the peace of mind that I had that I could literally just be with her and not have to focus on the delivery of the work, they all they all jumped in and they all said, we got this. And they I know we're talking amongst each other saying, don't call her, don't email her, give her the space. Yeah. And um, that was a gift. That was a gift for me. Wow. Gift that I needed was permission to have time to be with my mom and to take Mm -hmm. important at the time. And, you know, that, that to me was just uh, a perfect example, the team giving back to me. Yeah. Doing what we were just acknowledging you do is that you recognize what's going on for someone. You're curious about how you can help. You're willing to jump in and help. And I love how they were bold enough give you the permission and to really encourage you. I'm sure they probably had to say it more than once or twice to really help you feel secure to know that everything's going to be okay. And that you could put your focus on your mom. And I mean, that it's so important for us to work in an environment where people actually care about us as a person, you know, they care about our family, they care about our priorities, our values, and we don't always agree on everything, but we respect each other and we, we give each other space. That, that's such a great example. 
So where are other ways that you see payoffs or, or dividends for generosity? So, I mean, I think what happens when you give to people and you either give them permission or give them um, an opportunity and reward them, if you will, by recognizing them or giving them the opportunity to present in front of an executive team for the first time is they then recognize that you're supporting them and you have their back and they're willing to go that extra mile and apply discretionary effort to succeed, not only for themselves, but for you, for the team, for the organization. And so that's you know, in, in HR world, we call that, you know, engagement, engagement levels and sustainable engagement is driven by how much discretionary effort am I going to put into my job? Obviously, there's the job that you do when people come to work and they clock in and they clock out and they do the work and it's all fine. But that discretionary piece is really the sustainable engagement. It's what you said. It's do I feel like somebody at work cares about me? Do I feel like somebody at work recognizes my work? Does somebody value me? Do I have team members I can confide in? It's all of those pieces are the discretionary. Mm. And so when you're in a generous environment where people feel like they're fully supported, that return on that extra engagement is huge. Mm. And people will always say, and it's been studied a million different ways, that people don't leave jobs, they, la- they leave managers and they leave leaders. Because what's missing is that piece where they feel like their discretionary effort is recognized and valued. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that is a reward in and of itself is applying a little bit of discretionary effort on the leader's side of just letting people know you're valued, you're appreciated, giving them opportunities, giving them empowering them to do more comes back tenfold because people are motivated by that and inspired by that, especially high performing people over and over again. I mean, we talk about pay for performance. I have a compensation background. The statistics are there, but the highest performing people in any organization, if you ask them why they stay at their job, they will never say it's because I'm getting paid a lot of money. They will always say it's because of the challenging work, the great people, the support that I get, the recognition of my value, And that's about generous leaders who are willing to invest time and support them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I love that you brought it back to that because it, it is good business, right? It's the right thing to do. And it's the kind thing to do. It's also the smartest thing to do for bottom line benefits, whatever your intent is. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open to that as long as we're being generous, (laughs) the motive isn't as important to me as the generosity Um, And you're just bringing up another point of why it's so beneficial. So on the point of generosity, I think, you know, you are responsible for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Coca-Cola. Can you talk to us about some of the insights and awareness that you've gained or that you've been attentive to, and in particular, the anti-Asian racism that's been going on in the world? So again, this past year was a difficult one for a lot of reasons, but certainly, um, not insignificantly the social justice issues that we experienced in this country. And for us as an organization, it was a defining moment of us sort of understanding how we needed to respond to our employees in our community um, who were really hurting. And so from a diversity, equity and inclusion standpoint, what we tried to do was really give people the space to talk about how they were feeling, 
Um, we had these stand as one town halls where we just brought people together and, and had discussions and conversations. We encouraged people to create their own communities to share how people were feeling. Um, we had a group of employees, you know, remember this was in the May-June timeframe, so the pandemic had, had, was in its early days, um, and they self-arranged uh, a march to the Capitol in support of the passage of the hate crimes bill. And um, it was a challenging moment for us as a company because given the health and safety concerns that we had, we were very concerned about encouraging people to do that. Um, but this group of very passionate employees came to us and said, we're going to do it regardless of whether the company supports us, mm -hmm. but we want you to know that we think it's important. And, and so we said, got it. And so we stepped in and tried to provide as much support as we could. We provided masks and waters. We gave our building was closed, so they couldn't go to the building. Um, we had parking for them. We tried to have, um, you know, some, some security escorts. So they could yeah. And um, we had hundreds of employees in the middle of this pandemic that marched to the Capitol um, to support the passage of this hate crimes bill. Um, and so I think, what we did as an organization was we really took stock of, you know, in a moment of crisis, um, actions mean more than words. So while we can say in our purpose statements and everything else that we support a diverse and inclusive environment, our actions speak louder than words. So being able to support our people in that effort, offering the town halls and offering, you know, opportunities to do these things was extremely important. We also stood up a social justice agile team of people, a cross section of employees throughout the business who came together to advise us on how we should respond, what we should do, what do our employees need. Um, and so I think that was um, another thing that happened. And then most recently, because it seems like, you know, no group is untouched. Um, the what's happening to the Asian American community is, is just tragic. Um, and it's been going on for so long. You and I touched briefly about the fact that when I was in college over 30 years ago, my thesis was about the representation of Asians in media. And I reflected at that time on um, the brutal murder of Vincent Chen, who was the Detroit auto worker that was beat to death uh, by um, the auto workers because they mistook him to be Japanese. And at the time, there was a lot of concern about jobs of American auto workers being taken away by Japanese. You know, fast forward to where we are today, you know, very little has changed. I, I think that the challenge for the Asian community is, um, you know, you've heard all these descriptions, the model minority, you've heard kind of all these things where it's not culturally ingrained that you make a lot of noise. Um, it's a stereotype, but, you know, Asians are typically taught to put your head down and just do your work and not raise a lot of um noise, not try to cause controversy. And so I think there is a struggle right now. And it is, it is a group of people that is suffering in silence. And so what I would want the listeners to understand is that every Asian American is suffering one way or another. I was just speaking to a colleague the other day, and she shared with me something that had happened in a meeting, you know, a year and a half ago, uh, when a racial slur was used, an Asian racial slur was used in a meeting. And I was horrified. And her comment to me was, you know what, I've just developed such thick skin about it right now. I mean, obviously, I was uncomfortable at the moment. But she said it happens all the time. I mean, this is 2021. Mm. 
it should not be happening, right? And so what I think we have to do as a community and certainly me as an Asian American leader is we have to stand up and we have to give the voice to this group of, of people who don't feel like they have a voice um, because it's still going on. I, you know, you've known me a long time and um, I was born in this country, uh, was raised in Southwest Virginia. I'm about as American as you can get. And still to this day, I get comments about where am I from? Um, your English is really good. Um, how long have you been here? Um, you know, have you been to China lately? And, and, you know, do you have the virus? I mean, literally, these are questions people have asked my children. Um, one, this is sad to them, maybe admitted this, but my, my son who goes to a school here in Atlanta, um, one of his friends did ask, his, his parents wanted to know um, if, he, if he had been to China recently, because if so, um, they were concerned about him being at school. And I said to him, you need to tell him that not only have you never been to China, because my family's from Taiwan, your parents have never been to China. Um, and so these are things that, you know, we, we all have to, to be more vocal about. We obviously have to support our community. Um, but when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, these are the conversations we need to have. We need to raise them to the forefront um, and we need to be in a place where we can have courageous conversations about how these comments make people feel. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Lisa. And what this is reminding us of is how we have to stand in the void. We have to be unified in how we're going to be a part of the solution because the individual who's being treated that way in the meeting can't be the person who's correcting that behavior. It has to be other members of that group, just like it is anytime we see any other injustice. So this is a call to action for all of us to speak up and say something. And if we're be not aware, yeah. yeah, we have to be allies. And if we're not aware of how deep rooted this problem is, we've got to learn. Yeah. You know, I, again, I would just ask the listeners to, I know everyone here knows a colleague, coworker, or a friend that's of Asian descent. Just pick up the phone and ask them how they're doing. And if they've experienced anything recently that is troubling to them that they'd want to talk about. Lisa also graciously shared her experiences as an Asian American woman and some of the challenges she's faced. To begin our conversation, I asked Lisa what she feels allies can do to help, especially right now, in addition to checking in on AAPI colleagues, neighbors, friends, and family. Here's what she said. Some of it's just giving voice. I mean, I can talk a little bit about that, which is when I, when I tell people, Shannon, that that still happens to me, that I still go down to the target here, and inevitably someone says to me, gosh, your English is so good. I mean, honestly, seriously, in this day and age, and I, I think many Asian Americans, as I and my brothers did growing up here, suffer a little bit with um, the compromises that we feel like we have to make. So one is you want to assimilate and you want to fit in, right? Because in order, you know, if you can do that, then people won't see you as being different, right? And so that literally was the MO back in the day. I mean, I grew up in Southwest Virginia. My parents, were, there were very few Asians in that area. And th they said, we're going to try to fit in. So we were very, you know, and 
they did what they thought they needed to do to help us survive. They just said, mm-hmm. look, fit in as much as you can. And it sort of was a little bit of a joke with people that um, when I went to college, um, I started getting these flyers to come to the Asian American social, you know, and my roommate, I'd say, Oh, look, they're having this party on Friday. Do you want to go? And she looked at me and said, uh, not Asian. And I'm like, well, then why did I get it? And they, she was like, you're Asian. And I said, I am. I mean, literally, I was like, oh, wait, is that different than what you are? Because like, I thought we were just people. And she's like, no, Asian. Yeah. So I mean, I think, but now there's this recognition that, and this is what I've tried to teach my kids who are obviously second generation born and raised in the United States to have an appreciation for their history and an understanding of what it means to be an Asian American mm-hmm. um, and an appreciation for sort of what their grandparents and parents and great grandparents have been through to, to come to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that a lot of Asian Americans feel that way. It's like, I want to be as Americanized as possible to fit in because that reduces my chances of people seeing me as different. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I want to be proud of my heritage and my history and where I came from. And that's the diversity that I bring to the table is experiences and culture and, yep. and, and all those things. So it's, yeah. um, but I think a lot of ethnicities feel the same. The Hispanic culture is the mm-hmm. same way mm-hmm. um, where yeah. I, I think it's another group that is underrepresented in these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally. expect us yeah. to continue to need to have that conversation. It's another group that needs the attention and the, and the microphone to talk about the challenges they've had um, as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it just, we, we have a, a long way to go. Yeah, um, we do. But I'm hopeful. I think, again, by giving people voice and platform to continue mm-hmm. to talk about it and by having people that are willing to listen and ask questions and be curious um, is so helpful. Yes, it would be so helpful. I really appreciate what you're encouraging us to do here, Lisa. Ask questions. Ask those open-ended, exploratory questions to really seek first to understand before being understood, right? We've heard that from St. Francis of Assisi, Stephen Covey, and leaders beyond around how can we first seek to understand? And when we ask those great questions that we listen, really listen, like what are they saying? What are they not saying? What kind of examples are they using? And then be curious. If there's one competency I wish all of us could develop further is curiosity, like leaning into what you don't understand and even challenging your own thoughts and beliefs and behaviors, right? So so hitting that with curiosity and then encouraging us to not only identify when we witness microaggressions or any form of exclusive behavior, but that we confront them even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it is uncomfortable. Look, these are uncomfortable conversations to have just generally speaking. And so I think we have to recognize that and call it what it is. Um, But I think, again, going back to being courageous, I think we have to have courageous conversations. And, you know, I'm never one to say that we should shame people in meetings. So if I were in a meeting and someone said something like that, you know, first thing I would do is follow up with the person that was in the room that may have been hurt by the comments and ask if they're okay and acknowledge that I felt it too, or that I recognized that that was something that um, made them uncomfortable. And then I would ask them, um, you know, are you comfortable saying something to that person or would you like me to? Mm -hmm. Um, And if they said, look, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't have it. I would go to the other person and say, Hey, look, in that meeting, 
I heard you say this and you have to understand how that potentially made so-and-so feel mm-hmm. and try to have an education conversation, recognizing full well, that you know, there's a 50, 50 chance that that conversation is not going to go well. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the courageousness I'm talking about. We mm-hmm. have to have advocates and allies and the courage to stand up and say, Hey, what? It's not good to talk about people like that. And how would that make you feel? And yeah. yeah. And what were you intending? Right. What were you intending? And sometimes. Oh, yeah. I was trying to be funny or, you know, that type of thing. And it's, you know. Yeah. Well, this is how it made me feel. And this is the impact it had. Yeah. I think that's, those are courageous conversations that could really make the kind of change that we want to see necessary change. Let's close with one of your favorite quotes from Dr. Maya Angelou. Do you mind sharing it with us? No, I'd love to. So her quote is, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And what does I that say to you? That. Yeah, I just love that because it, it really is so true for me. And it's really how I try to lead and live, which is, you know, words are short-lived, even actions are short-lived. But the feeling that I got when someone you know, extended me a hand, gave me a pat on the back, lifted me up when I was down, called me when I was sad, or gave me words of encouragement. Those last forever. Those feelings last forever. Mm. Um, You know, as a a kid, I, I always felt like, oh, you know, I have to have souvenirs and I have to have, you know, a t-shirt from Disney World to help me remember that I went there. But you don't because the t-shirt you outgrow and the souvenir you lose. But the nostalgic feeling that you get every time you think about being in Disney World for the first time never goes away. Right. That's sort of how what this quote makes me think of is, you know, I might not be able to do or say enough to help people remember the impact that, you know, what I did for them was, but I can help make them feel the way I would want to be felt. Mm -hmm. that's really again at the center of what I try to do is just show that kindness and help people feel the way I would want to feel yeah and it it really doubles back on a lot of the things that you shared with us about I want people to feel appreciated I want people to feel like they matter I want people to feel like they're seen I want people to feel like they're loved and I'm going to express myself and I I think that quote is really helpful because sometimes we get caught up in well what should I say and when should I say it? And, you know, this is saying, just, just be there, say right. it the best you can. And, and maybe even say, this may not come out correctly, or I'm just going to talk off the top of my head or, or whatever you have to say to, you know, give yourself an out, but to, to say it and to make the connection because you care. And then the final thing that I would just add to that is again, I, I, I really can't take credit for being who I am and the leader that I am today because I woke up that way. Um, I'm a product of an environment of great people ahead of me who took the time to invest in me and taught me how to be a generous leader. And so what I hope is that the things that I'm doing, again, not for my own personal recognition or anything else, is that it will create a new generation of leaders that will also do that. And it continues and continues and what I try to do with my children. I know that's what you try to do with your children, but as leaders, I think that's our responsibility is just to keep it going and to to pay it forward. Yeah. Right. And to bring up 
children, you know, we are children of generous people and we've had opportunities to work with and for generous people and not right. I mean, so we've got the range, but you're saying, you know, of my life experience of all the people that I have had the privilege of learning from and paying attention to, including your parents, including your sibling, including your, you know, colleagues and previous bosses and otherwise, you know, it, it has been a, a culmination, right? All of those things are working for good. And if, if we let them, yeah. right? Because some of the things you talked about today are how can we pay attention to those signs and those lessons and really take it into heart and just decide how that's going to adjust, how we're going to operate from that point forward. Uh, well, thank you for this time. Thank you, thank you for the time and uh, for your generosity in recognizing what others do, um, which is a reflection of, of what you yourself do. Ah, thank you, Lisa. Right back at you. <laughs> thank you for being who you are. Our OG takeaway tip, how to apply what we've learned to our own work and lives. The call to action this week, reach out and let your AAPI colleagues and friends know that you see them and support them. Encourage them to have courageous conversations and amplify their voice if needed. Stand in the gap if there's a void between the current reality and inclusivity. People will never forget how you made them feel. Valued, appreciated, respected. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.